I'm Jerry Hancock from Men in Balance Radio, and now we'll talk to Jack Stanford. Who, Jack, welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, Jack is a cancer survivor, so I want to talk to him about that and about the ministry that has come from that. So Jack, tell us your story. Well, I was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. It started out, I was told, was uh, an ulcerated esophagus. When was that? That was uh, in... 2004, and um, uh, it turned out that it wasn't a soft, it wasn't a cancer. I mean, it wasn't uh, an ulcerated esophagus. It was a huge tumor at the base of my esophagus and into my stomach, and uh, it was too big to be operated on. And um, the doctor said there was nothing they could do for me and that it was stage 4 cancer, and that uh, my wife should take me home and make me as comfortable as possible, that I had three to six months to live, and wow. there wasn't anything they could do for me. Hmm. That must have been quite a blow. Um, one thing you learn, you learn about cancer is, and I've seen it happen several times, is that um, when they give you that kind of news, you quite often shut it out and have no idea what they said. Um, I had no idea what they said. It went right over my head as soon as they said I had cancer. Uh, I was riding home with my wife afterwards, and she had been just been told, as I said, taking home and making as comfortable as possible. And I said, well, I think that went rather well, don't you? I think we can still make our trip to Hawaii. And she looked at me like... You are totally out of your mind. And I was. I knew I, I had no concept of what had just been told to me. But my wife did, and she went home and researched the subject, uh, went online and looked for the best esophageal cancer people she could find in the country. And lo and behold, she found the top expert in the country who was chief of surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. She immediately contacted them, told them our story. They said to send my file down. She emailed them to me that to them that day. Um, they looked at it and said, "Bring him in." We went down. They gave me an examination, a diagnosis, and they said, "Your doctors were exactly right. It's stage four cancer. You got three to four months, three to four or five months." Uh, it's a tumor. It's eaten to 40% of your stomach and most of your esophagus. And you have three to six months. However, you are in very good shape for a 74-year-old man. And if you want to try something, we'll go along with it. You need nine months of chemotherapy and uh, nine months. You don't have that long. We will give you nine months of chemotherapy and radiation in three months. And that will probably totally disable you because your body can't stand that much punishment at mm. once. And I said, bring it on. They did. And I didn't become disabled. I kept up my exercises, kept walking my dog. 
My dog would walk me. She would make me walk, walk her every day. And uh, it ended up at the uh, end of three months. I went back in, and they said that the tumor had shrunk to half its size, and I was candidate now for surgery. We went to Mayo Clinic. There, the chief of surgery and the expert esophageal guy did the operation and removed 80% of my esophagus and 40% of my stomach. And in the miraculous operation, which they did all laparoscopically, uh, that was done. Mm. Uh, five days later, they walked into my hospital room and said, we have the pathology report back, and you are now cancer-free. Go home. Wow, that was excellent. <laughs> so, well, a number of things are curious about that. One is, that was 19, that you were 74, now you're 90, right? So that's, I'm not 84. You're 84, 84. You had the date so you're, that's 10 years ago, and you, you're still around, and you look pretty healthy to me. You're getting around great. I am, but I had, uh, the interesting part really is the religious revelation I had I've, I've always gone to church, and uh, uh, I go to church to worship, and uh, I've been fortunate to have good preachers, and um, I, I, I believe in prayer, and during my chemo and radiation, as I say, I walked. I walked prior to that. That's why I was in good shape. I walked two and two and a half miles up and down hills every other day with my dog. And uh, uh, that's when I did my praying. I was alone. I was outside. It's a perfect atmosphere in which to pray and meditate. Um, so when I was walking, I did my praying. And I prayed to God for my condition, and I prayed to God for this, and prayed to God for that. And then I remembered something my sermon, uh, something my pastor had preached on, and that was, try listening to God. Stop talking to him and start listening. And I thought to myself, whoa, I need to shut up and start listening. And I said, I've been doing all the talking to God. i got to start listening. And within a day or two, it just came to me during one of my walks, and I was praying. It was as if God was reaching down and actually talking to me. I got the message that I wasn't going to die, that he was training me to become, to go on and help others in his condition. I was going to school. He was sending me to school by going through this, this process of having cancer and going through the, the treatment of it so that I could go on and help others in the same way. That's why he was going to let me live. And he was right. He let me live. The, I, I was cured after the operation. And um, I didn't forget why. I went on and I started just speaking to my pastor, speaking to my groups around the church, letting them know what I wanted to do that I wanted to help other people who were in my similar situation. And you, you've sort of become a one-man ministry. <laughs> I did. I became a one-man ministry. That's a good way to put it. 
uh, I call them my cancer buddies. The first thing I did while I was undergoing treatment was I read every book I could get my hands on. Books written by, uh, the first book I had was written by an oncologist who was a fan, it was just a fantastic book about how to handle cancer and uh, what to do and uh, uh, how to handle it. And then I read other books by people, famous people who had had cancer and conquered it. Uh, Scott Hamilton, the famous figure, skate, figure skater, mm -hmm. had cancer, three bouts with cancer. Um, all number of people that you probably recognize. I read their books and uh, they were great. Uh, Lance Armstrong went through uh, two bouts with cancer. Uh, and he's written very motivational books. And they all said, um, help other people. Yeah. That other people, whenever you have cancer, you need a buddy. You need someone to, to help you through it. So I decided then that I was going to try and help other people. And I did it through my church. Uh, I'm what they call a Stevens minister in my church, uh, which we're trained to be sort of ministers, helpers. And um, I told people that I was going to help other people who had cancer if they had anybody they knew. And sure enough, I started getting phone calls. My buddy's got cancer. My sister has cancer. My brother has cancer. Would you talk to him? And I said, sure. And I started talking to these people. And I found that it really helped them to sit across from the kitchen table or sit in the living room and talk with them about their cancer from somebody who had been there, done that. Right. Uh, I understood what they felt like after a day of chemo. I knew they felt like crap mm -hmm. and wanted to go home and lay on the couch. I, I knew that food did not smell good to them. Uh, we talked about things like that and what we could do to combat it. Oh, what, when you talk to people like that, what was the um, common denominator that most of them felt as far as their... Was it fear? I mean, were they afraid of the, what was to happen to them? The unknown. The unknown. The unknown has causes anxiety and uncertainty. The unknown causes uncertainty, or the unknown is uncertainty, and uncertainty causes anxiety. Yeah. And uh, so most of them were uncertain, and as a result had anxiety. But you weren't able to offer them hope necessarily, but you were able to be, what, sort of a listening post? and a I was able to empathize with them. And that was very important to be able to empathize with them. Um, that, yeah, I know. I was uncertain too. And um, all you can do is put your trust in God and know that he's going to make it turn out okay. All right. So this, but this uh, effort that you've started has gone larger than just your local community, right? You, you, yes, it has. I, I, it is amazing because I didn't. Everybody said, "Well, you need to go on and establish a website and uh, go online with it." And I said, "Yeah, they were right. I could have, but I didn't. I went strictly word of mouth, 
and it spread like wildfire. Hmm. I was getting calls from all sorts of people who said, hey, could you help here? And before I knew it, I had cancer buddies everywhere. I was well outside the church. And uh, as it's turned out today, I've had over 75 cancer buddies throughout the country. That's amazing. Um, tell me the story that I've heard you tell before um, about the butterfly. Is that the right? butterfly. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite stories. The day before I went in to find out why I was bleeding eternally, I was sitting out on my deck that faces the lake, and it was a beautiful day, and I was sitting out there waiting for my wife to get dressed because she was insisted on going to the doctor with me. And um, all of a sudden, the butterfly landed on my shoulder. We don't have butterflies around my house. And I looked and I thought, wow. And I looked at that butterfly, and that butterfly was staring right into my eyes. And I went, well, where did you come from? And I thought about, immediately thought about the movie Love is a Mini Splendid Thing, where William Holden falls in love with a lady in China, and they fall in love and they always meet on the top of this windy hill. And then they get separated, and he comes back after a long time, and she's gone, and he finds out she's died. And he goes on top of the hill, and he's there, and a butterfly sits on his shoulder, and he knows that it's her. Mm. And I thought, and I looked at a butterfly, and I thought immediately of that movie. From then, my wife said, I'm ready. We got in the car, went to the doctor, and that's when they told me I had cancer. Wow. I had not seen that butterfly again, except once it came back. Really? About a month later, it came back and lit on my shoulders again. Mm. Now, as I say, it's unusual because we don't have butterflies around our house. It's a... Um, the Cancer Buddy program... It's not even a program. It's amazing what God will do when you call on Him because all of these cancer buddies have really been sent to me. And uh, uh, as I say, they range across the country. And I, when I say I've been cancer buddies, so I haven't met personally with all of them, but I have talked with all of them on a regular basis mm -hmm. on the telephone, yeah. sometimes for hours. I, I want to ask you a question. I don't want to <clears throat> put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you went from having a spiritual life that was sort of so-so to one that's very real. Is that, is that fair? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I... Um, it is amazing the power of prayer. I had no idea the power of prayer before. But the power of prayer uh, and what it will do, I, can, I cannot think of any other reason I would make contact with 75 people with cancer, most of whom I'd never met, yeah. and be so close to them if it wasn't for the power of prayer. Mm. Um, you're also 
involved in Make-A-Wish, or were involved, I don't know if you still are, but tell me, you had a sort of a unique story there that, that happened too. Uh, Make-A-Wish was, uh, yeah, that's a, one of my pet projects. I uh, uh, was watching uh, a television program on 2020, uh, a documentary show that we probably all know. And um, they ran a story about a police officer uh, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, who came across uh, a little boy uh, who was uh, five years old and uh, was dying of a brain tumor. And he always wanted to be a, a state patrolman. And uh, this state patrolman picked up the story and uh, contacted him and uh, went out to see him and said, how would you like to come with me? And he did. We came with him for a day. And he took him out and let him ride in the police car and turn on the lights and a siren and uh, run the course and uh, uh, go through headquarters and ride with him in the patrol car. They ended up getting his fellow buddies and the uh, fellow officer buddies involved. They ended up getting him a uniform and a badge and a helmet. And um, he go up and down the sidewalk giving people tickets. And uh, uh, he, he finally got sick from brain cancer. Uh, they put a hook and ladder from the fire engine up to his window, and they all went up the ladder and saw him. Oh, my gosh. And uh, they ran this story, and uh, they said uh, that was this kid's wish. And uh, since then, this patrol officer, or state trooper, actually, Arizona State Trooper. This state trooper uh, has sought, helped three or four other kids like that who had a wish that they wanted to be and who were fate were uh, diagnosed uh, not to make it. And um, this, this, this state trooper had made these wishes come true. And he said that they were going to try and do this, continue this on. Well, I had just um, founded and run and run another nonprofit uh, that I founded and uh, was got too big for me and really laid off to a national organization. And I felt kind of empty and wanted something to give back to the community again. And I thought, ah, this would be perfect. So I, right after the program, I picked up the phone and called Phoenix Information, and got the number of this state trooper. And I called him. And he was very friendly. And uh, uh, we talked for a long time. And I told him, I said, I'm inspired. I'd like to do something here. And he says, by all means. I said, I lived in Hawaii at the time. I'd like to do something in the state of Hawaii. He said, great. I'll help you all I can. I said, what do you call your thing? And he said, we don't even know what to call it. He said, we're, we're thinking about calling it Make-A-Wish. And I said, that's a great name. I said, you know what? I'll call mine over here Make-A-Wish Hawaii. And he said, great. I'll call mine Make-A-Wish Arizona. And I said, that's a deal. Let's stay in touch. And that's how I started Make-A-Wish Hawaii. And uh, had my first couple of wishes. And uh, it turned out that he called me about a few months later and said, 
hey, this thing's getting crazy. He said, we've got chapters all over, the, you've got people all over the country wanting to do this. He says, I've got over seven states right now that have called me and want to start these things. And I said, well, you better get hold of it. We better get it organized or we're all going to be going in different directions. And he said, that's right. He said, let's hold a meeting. And I said, all right. He said, let's hold it here in Phoenix. And we'll have a meeting of all these states that want to do this. And I said, fine, I'll be there. And uh, we met. And sure enough, we had all seven states appear. And uh, we all agreed that this was a good deal. And before long, before we were even through with our meeting, we had four or five other states that said they wanted to do it. And uh, so we said, let's organize something. And so we had corporate papers drawn for Make-A-Wish. Make-A-Wish what? Oh, let's call it just Make-A-Wish America. And that's what we drew the corporate papers on. Hmm. And um, we didn't file right away. We turned around and went home. And then we got together just a few weeks later and said, this thing's got to be brought under control. So we went back and they said, we got it organized. And I uh, said, you're right. When you get it organized, let me know. And they said, no, wait. We've had a meeting and we've decided that we would like you to be head of the new organization. Wow. And I said, why me? And they said, because we think you're the best one to be able to organize it. And I said, okay, I'll do it. So I became the first president of Make-A-Wish America. I didn't know that part of the story. And that's how it got started. Yeah. So you're, the little girl that you heard you talk about, how did that come about? Um, the little girl... You helped a, a girl with a wish... Locally, I oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a, a little girl that uh, wanted to go to Disneyland. So we sent her to Disneyland. Mm. And uh, that came out just a little great. Right. So, so did that involve raising some private money to send yeah, her? Well, yeah, the private money came out of my till. <laughs> uh, we sent she and her family mm. to Disneyland, her brothers and sisters. And... Um, Family to Disneyland. And so this would have been a girl who had terminal cancer, yeah. right? And how old was she? Oh, I think she was um, eight or nine. Yeah. So, so you've had quite a life, Jack, and I, and I know um, it's like God has always given us new lessons, right? So always. <laughs> so, what would you say to some of your younger counterparts who are maybe in their thirties and forties and looking at their career and everything sort of sailing along and uh, maybe they don't feel like they need a spiritual side to their life. What would you say to them? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be spiritual. Um, but I was sailing along and becoming, I had become very successful in my business. Uh, business had been very good to me. Uh, the community had been very good to me. And I had for some time felt that maybe it was time for me to give back. I, uh, I and just at that time, I had been offered a political position from uh, a congressman that had died, a state state position. And I thought, no, I don't want to get involved in that. But I did feel that I needed to give back to the community. And it was at that time that I started the uh, first transplant organization in the country.
uh, first transplant organ bank. Uh, it was when kidneys were just now starting to be transplanted. And uh, uh, we started the first really kidney kidney bank and later on all organs. But um, I had just spun that off and I uh, was missing giving back to the community. Always, I, I think you are definitely the biggest benefactor when you give back to the community. Right. You're the one that gets the most out of it. And, and it's odd that um, so many of us feel like we just don't have time for that and we don't realize the payback for that is so important, so powerful. Well, when the community is as good to you as it is to many successful people, hmm. when the community is that good to them, uh, I think there comes a time when they say, hey, maybe it's time to say thanks a little bit yeah. and give back. And then what happens is they're the biggest benefactor. They're the biggest benefactor when they give back. Yeah. So any other advice you would give that you've learned over your uh, years as a man, as a spiritual man? Oh, uh, yes. I, uh, I've learned so much and still know so little. Um, always always follow your heart. And um, when you got a problem, and when you don't have a problem, pray to God for His guidance. Uh, I've had a fantastic life. I've sailed the high seas on a sailboat. I've ridden the entire North American continent on a motorcycle. Uh, uh, I've had a fantastic life. And uh, was able to retire young enough to enjoy retirement in a beautiful place like this. Mm. And um, uh, follow your heart and follow your prayers. Wow. That's pretty good advice. Well, our time is up. Thanks so much for the time with you and for what you've done and what you continue to do to bless other people. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jerry, and thank you for what you do. Well, thank you. This is Jerry Hancock from Men and Balance Radio.